Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Welcome to the first ever Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler, and joining me is my colleague from Cut Through Coaching, Tim Perkins. This podcast is designed to help you thrive, not only on a professional, but personal level. And so to help you do that, we'll be sharing with you interviews, we'll be sharing research and ideas, tools and strategies that you can deploy, not only in your professional life, but also your personal life. To kick off our very first episode, we're going to respond to questions that have been sent in by participants in our Habits for Leadership program. These participants are from across the Asia-Pacific and take part either via face-to-face workshops or via our online program. Our first question is from Jared, who is a deputy principal at a school in Victoria. He says his school is going through change and they're really trying to shake up the, the status quo of the roles and responsibilities that staff there have. And his question is, in, in this time of disruption of, of those old practices and positions, he's wondering what elements of emotional intelligence can be harnessed to motivate, reassure, and support staff to reimagine their roles and practices. Tim? Thanks, Dan. I really like this question, actually, because I like, Jared. I like your approach to the question because what it's saying to me is that you're trying to use emotional intelligence as a framework to work with your staff. You've used the three words to motivate, to reassure, and to support staff. And I think that almost all people find change difficult, and that's probably what you're encountering in this situation now, whether it's a school or whether it's a corporate situation, whether it's a sporting team. Change is difficult for many people. That doesn't mean that they have a problem with change necessarily, but so much of it is in the way that it is delivered um, and how we express that to them. So that idea of staff reimagining their roles and practices, really what we're saying there is that in order for them to change, how do we facilitate that? How do we make that easier for our staff? Daniel Goleman, who is someone who's written very broadly about the concepts of emotional intelligence, as I'm sure all our listeners know, He talks about different pillars of emotional intelligence and a couple of them that I think are probably worth focusing on here uh, pertain to the leaders and and those two are around the concepts of self-awareness and self-regulation. Self-awareness really requires us to understand how our emotions uh, and our actions affect the people who are around us Um, and as a leader within an environment, Um, it is your emotions and actions that really set the emotional tone of of the group that are working together. Um, In order to get people to change, in order to work with people through a change process, that emotional environment has to be one that is conducive to people feeling safe to make change. Yeah, I mean, when I hear these questions, and and often, let's be honest, we get asked this a lot, we go into schools and we say, hey, how do we get our team to get on board? How do we get our team to, to do these things? And invariably, um, my answer is I don't know. Um, because up until that point, um, 
I've never met them before. I don't know the stuff. I don't know what will motivate them or reassure them. I don't know how to support um, a a team or a particular uh, member of staff. Sure, I've got broad ideas and frameworks and we have approaches that we use here at Cut Through, but the very first um, step in any of our approaches is to build another key pillar of emotional intelligence, which is uh, empathy. So what we mean when we're talking about empathy is, uh, you know, really seeking to understand where people are at so we know how to move them to where we need them to be. Too often we just tell people to move to where we want them to be without really paying enough attention or giving it honouring, if you like, um, where it is that they're at. So what I'd be really urging anybody to to um, who's engaged in trying to uh, change things at their school is to you know take the time to work out where people are on their journeys and then by paying real attention to the other pillars of emotional intelligence that Tim mentioned here you know being self-aware and self you know self-regulating and, and considering well does the way I talk about this change does that motivate people or does it coerce people uh, does it reassure them that you know we're going to do something new here am I reassuring them that well, we expect mistakes. And in fact, you know what, more than that, we might even welcome mistakes and see them as learning opportunities. Or are we kind of saying, hey, we're changing here, and we just need you to get it right first time. And do we in our conscious and subconscious language and and behaviors, do we support staff who struggle with the change? Or do we, you know, if we put not to be too blunt about it, do we ostracize them? Do we, um, you know, we I speak at and Tim speaks at lots of conferences where, you know, we, we're working with the early adopters and, and those who are, you know, further down the the, the, the change uh, cycle are, are almost seen as Luddites and they're, they're cast aside. And I think there's um, real problems when we start embarking on that kind of rhetoric. So it really does come, um, it really comes back to the leader being self-aware and really questioning, you know, if you think about it this way, it's taken you as the leader, your whole professional career, to get to the point where you think this change is important enough to embark on. And I think once you actually bear that in mind, and then we pay due attention to where everybody else is on their professional journey, then we might be a bit more deliberate and a bit more intentional about what we say, how we communicate, whether it's high stakes, low stakes, and really question is what I'm doing right now motivating, reassuring, or supporting? And we've actually got another question coming up shortly in this podcast where we start to address some of those issues. But our next question is from Gary, who uh, has a role mentoring early-stage principals in Victoria. And Gary's question is, the impact around and participation in a difficult conversation is something that leaders often have to consider. What are some of your ideas or suggestions around this important aspect of leadership practice? Dan, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I love this question because, um, it, as, as you know, Tim, you know, much of our work is, is centred on either dealing with the aftermath of a poorly hand, handled difficult conversation or we work with people who seem to, I don't know, spend their life really trying to avoid having difficult conversations. And I actually think that's one of the first um, considerations when it comes to this. If you're going to be a leader 
um, then you must you have to know that difficult conversations are going to be part and parcel of of your, of your work. And the thing, you know, I, I think there's a difference between difficult conversations and really difficult conversations. And I think we end up having really difficult conversations because we actually don't have enough adult conversations so when you know let's say we've just been promoted um to head of a department for example and we're now for for want of a better expression we're now the line manager of people who are our friends outside of school or or outside of the workplace and you know we don't want to upset that apple cart and so we kind of let things slide that you know maybe a crankier or more kind of micromanagement type boss they'd pick up on that but that's not who i am that's not me and it's not really a problem until it's a problem and then you've got to sit down and you've got to say you know you've got to go back over three or four months worth of less than professional behavior which needs which is now snowballed so the way you know I, I sort of look at this is look at I guess five key mindsets or mind frames when it comes to having what you might call difficult conversations the first one as I've alluded to is not avoid them so actually um, ha- try and have more adult conversations try and pick uh, you know pick your battles obviously you're not going in you know picking off every scab but don't let things slide because if you let them slide, you will definitely end up having a bigger problem down the track. And that leads nicely into the second one. So let's say that you're driving home tonight and you're listening to this podcast and you go, that's it, I'm having that difficult conversation tomorrow. Nine times out of ten, you're now going to spend the next 12 hours thinking about that difficult conversation. You're going to be ruminating it. You're going to be overplaying it. You're going to be lying in bed thinking about it and, and, and extrapolating all the different ways in which this conversation could go. So the second thing I'd like you to do is if you decide to have a difficult conversation, don't overthink it. Don't think about it too much. It's just it's just a conversation you're going to have. Because the problem with overthinking it leads to our third big problem, which is we all we overthink it and we think we know what other people are thinking. So we think we know why people aren't getting their programs in. We think we know why they're not, why they're not pulling their weight. We think we, we know, um, you know, why they've got it in for us and this, that and the other. And so we then start attributing different intentions to their behaviours and it's because they've, you know, they want to hold us back, they want to undermine us. It's because of this, it's because of that. And, of course, if you've, you know, ever had more than one conversation with someone, um, you work out pretty quickly that, you know what, you might be on the money in some regards, but you'll be well off the money in, uh, in, in other regards. So why waste your time? Why waste your emotional energy? Why be, have a sleepless night? You know, get a good night's sleep. Don't think about it too much until the next day. And when you go into that conversation, try and avoid the fourth most common mistake, which is trying to win that conversation. You know, sometimes we think it's a competition. Sometimes we think I've got to make my point and they've got to walk out with, you know, they've got to know their place and I've got to have, you know, really, you know, stuck my flag in the ground and made my point. Now, to be clear, if it's a performance management issue and it's like some really significant dramas, then maybe there's a real time and place for that kind of, you know, positioning of that conversation. But I'm talking about these day-to-day kind of conversations where we need to be picking up 
um, on, on, on incidents. So what we don't want to do is walk in there with this, I've got to win at all costs mentality, because by the very definition, if you win the conversation, the other person's got to have lost it. And whilst you might get that short-term gain that you were looking for. You might get that program handed in at the end of the week. You might get um, you know, a certain behavior change in the very short, immediate term. You might get that. But if that person's walking around now feeling that they've been put in their place by you, feeling like they've had a loss of uh, respect or a loss of um, sense of identity or whatever, that really plays into what Tim was talking about in question one, uh, you know, where we're talking about you, you, your team have to feel safe. And if your team is a team of winners and losers, then there's a lot of people who aren't feeling safe. So this then really begs the question, well, how should I script um, the conversation? How do I know what I'm going to say? And this, almost counterintuitively, is the fifth biggest mistake we make, where we try and over-script our conversation. You know, we have thought about it all night, all weekend. We think we know what other people are thinking. We've gone in there trying to win, and so we've mapped it out really carefully. I'm going to open with this, and then I'm going to counter with this, and they'll probably deny this, so I'm going to really push the point home with this point. And the thing about scripts are, scripts are brilliant for plays. Scripts are brilliant when everybody's read the script, but they're typically not that good great for organic conversations like these where the other person hasn't read the script in fact the other person has probably brought an entirely different script to the conversation and so one of the things that we're really mindful of and one of the things we're very intentional of in our work here at cut through is that we aren't we don't focus on giving conversation scripts although we are um we do focus on scripting a really well-crafted opening stanza, an opening verse, if you like, to the conversation. And I know, Tim, you'd like to jump in on this. Yeah, so that point's absolutely right, Dan, because I think once we have a script, when there's only been one person involved in writing that script, what we've essentially got is a monologue. And that nothing ruins a monologue better than having a second person involved in it. So if you actually want to have a productive, difficult conversation with a colleague, um, the idea of having a monologue never really works. Those of you who are familiar with the concepts of conflict, conflict resolution and the practices of conflict resolution, be very familiar with the idea of trying to objectify the situation. So rather than making it about negatives in the other person, it's about stating it from your position. So as Dan pointed out there, I think a, a tightly scripted basic outline is probably a great way to go. It will save you a lot of angst and it will also help you. You know, in the first question we talked about Goldman's concepts of self-awareness and self-regulation. Self-regulation is difficult in a difficult conversation. Not losing your temper, not getting frustrated, not letting that boil over into something that's unproductive is difficult to do in the heat of the moment. So having some sense of a, a loose script, which keeps you on track with remembering that you're trying to objectify this situation, you're not trying to make it about the other person, essentially what you're doing is bringing the conversation back to yourself and saying how you feel when certain things happening, certain things are happening. And so 
when Dan and I are working on this, we, we essentially work on three very simple or questions underneath three very simple headings, and they're, they're the when, the what, and the how. So I'll, I'll give you an example of something um, not dissimilar to what we've done with another school in the past. So the when simply stated is when was it that you had this drama with this person? Be specific because nothing makes these, nothing sabotages these situations more than when someone said, well, when did that happen? Mm. You never told me about that. And then people go, oh, but you always do it or you never hand in. And then obviously that (laughs) is never true. Exactly. So be specific about the when. So for example, last week in our team meeting, and on you go with the, the situation as it occurred. What was it that occurred? So what was the thing that really got under your skin that you are now having this difficult conversation about? So, for example, in that case, it was about teachers not handing in their programs on time to their stage leaders in a primary school setting. So last week in our team meeting, by not having your program ready and then bringing it really back to the I statements that they talk about in conflict resolution... How did that make me feel? So not what did you do, but how did it make me feel? I felt let down and I felt a bit disrespected, to be honest, and I'm worried about how this might end up impacting the students. So then after those comments underneath those three headings, which really very clearly map out what this conversation's about, now is the time to turn it back to the person you're having the issue with and to try and get their view on this. So... We're offering them the opportunity to take some responsibility here, um, which can be very helpful in these conversations. So it's not about blame. So one that Dan and I use, which is very helpful in this situation, is so I'm curious, what's your take on that? So effectively, you're giving them the right of reply before things get too hot and you're providing them the opportunity to take some responsibility for what's happened from their perspective. So all in all, that tightly scripted is what? Four or five lines. Last week in our team meeting, by not having your program ready, I felt let down, a bit disrespected to be honest, and I'm worried about how this might end up impacting the kids. So I'm curious, what's your take on that? And that's it. That's your script. And then if we employ some of the tenants from uh, emotional intelligence, then it's going to set you up to at least understand where that person's at. And a lot of the time, You'll, you'll come out with a win-win situation. You'll come out with action, not just in the short term, but over a longer period of time as well. So our last question is actually from Kathy, who's an assistant principal um, in New South Wales. And she um, is, has asked, and it's actually a question that we got from lots of, Lots of people who uh, submitted this. In fact, the vast majority of questions we got um, from our cohort all spoke about this. Uh, so Kathy's question pretty much sums it up. Um, is, you know, what are some of the most effective strategies to use if you have either strong resistance or passive resistance uh, to change? Tim? So this is a constant question, not just in schools, but in all of the organisations that we work with, because... As we stated in the first question, change can be challenging for a lot of people and where change begins and who's invited to be involved in change, uh, they're often happening in two different spheres. Sometimes people are 
suggesting change and enforcing change to some extent, and yet that change is having a quite a significant impact on other people who are expected to run with that change. We've identified three areas where this can particularly be a, ta- a challenge for school teachers. Um, the first one is when the people who are asked to implement the change don't really understand what the purpose of the change is or what, in fact, is being asked of them in relation to the change. Second one, um, sometimes people question the value of the change. And when you have people questioning the value of the change, then the most likely scenario here is that they haven't been fully briefed on what the change is about. They almost certainly haven't been a part of the process of that change up until that point. Often it's delivered as part of a whole staff meeting, for example, which is a really good way to develop dissent from um, members who are engaged at varying levels in that staff meeting. I can imagine that, like the staff meetings I was very familiar with as a school teacher, some people are sitting there doing their marking, some people might be sending a surreptitious text, some people are still chuckling about the thing that happened earlier in the day. Not everybody's actively involved. And then you find out that the reporting system at your school is about to change. You've only just got used to the idea, in fact, you've only tried it twice perhaps, the most recent change in the reporting system. And so immediately your back's up and you don't necessarily see the value in it. Um, And then the third one um, that people have seen change in your environment perhaps before and they say, well, it's this great new thing, someone got inspired, we've all been forced to change something and we know it's actually not going to be followed through. It's going to be dropped, you know, as readily as it was picked up. So all of those create an environment where change can be quite difficult for teachers and quite difficult for people who are trying to make those suggestions of change. Dan, you've worked in schools, you've worked with a lot of schools as a consultant subsequently. When you uh, um, uh, encounter issues of change in schools... What, what are some of the themes that you see and, and how do you deal with that sort of resistance to change that might come about? Yeah, I think, um, and you, we've, we've mentioned a few of these things, uh, certainly in um, the, the, the first question when you're responding to Gerard's question. Um, but I think um, one of the, you know, it's a throwaway line, but do people feel that change is being done to them or being done with them? And most of the time when um, there's resistance, whether it's really overt, almost like militant uh, resistance, or whether it's the, that more kind of keeping their head down, passive resistance, thinking it'll all you know, wash over them and there'll be something new anyway in another six months, a lot, the vast majority of times it's because they feel it's been done to them. There's been very little voice from the staff in, in general. There's almost like this... Um, perception that even though I've, I've, even though I've yet to ever actually hear of a leader walking in and saying right everything we're doing is rubbish we need to change everything um, the minute we say that we need to do something different there's a lot of people who feel well it's uh, casting dispersions on what it is I'm doing and and you know people are doubting what it is I do and furthermore they're doubting who I am they're doubting the value I bring to this um, organization or this school and so I mean the question asks for what's the best strategy to address resistance to change I think a lot of it is done prior to change 
Um, I think trying to address resistance to change once we've embarked on the change process is a bit like trying to whack a, you know, a, a turbocharger on a 1970 banger. You know, it's 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 going to make a lot of noise, but it's probably not going to make much difference in terms of performance. So, what I think is rather than trying to retrofit approaches to um, changes, we actually need to rethink the way we do this. And I can assure you that. Um, in subsequent episodes of Habits of Leadership here, we're going to be talking about this a lot, uh, different strategies. One one strategy we employ um, a great deal in, in, in this, I'm going to say, essentially all our work is um, an approach which is called appreciative inquiry. And what an appreciative inquiry approach to change seeks to do is touch on a lot of the things we've spoken about already. It seeks to develop empathy. And so it starts from a very much, uh, rather than assuming a position of deficit and a weakness and saying we're not doing a good enough job and we've got to change things, an appreciative inquiry actually starts from the position of we do some great work here. Let's shine a light on that and build from there. We'll put together a whole episode on appreciative inquiry um, in the coming weeks, but that's just one um, example. Another really practical way of thinking about overcoming this resistance is to see well what what is the, what are the barriers what what's what what are the issues that are, are presenting so very very broadly and again we'll do a, a much um, deeper uh, episode on this as well but very broadly speaking if change doesn't happen in your school it's probably down to one of these five things is missing one, uh, there's no vision. No one can tell you why we're doing it, which um, Tim mentioned before. They don't see the value in it. The second is that um, it could be that people don't have the skills to do it. So, um, you know, let's say it's something really simple like uh, just, I don't know, marking the roles online. There are some people on your staff who genuinely believe they don't have the skills to do that. They don't have the skills to switch on an iPad. But then maybe they do know the why. Let's say they do know the vision they do, and they do have the skills, but what's missing is the real incentive. What's in it for me? If you can't work out what makes your people tick and communicate a, a vision and a, and a skill set which actually is in, in line and aligned to their their vision as a, and mission as a teacher, then you, you're going to struggle. The third thing, that, sorry, the fourth thing which may well be missing is just the resources, the time, the money, and the space. And when I talk about space, I'm not just talking about the physical space, but that we mentioned this before, that psychologically safe space to actually embark on change. And then the final thing is um, not having a plan, not having milestones, not having anyone driving it. Who's accountable for it? When am I supposed to be sharing back what we've been doing? And so I'd be considering um, before embarking on any um, on any changes is try and do like a little bit of a... Uh, an assessment or, or a, you know, a, a kind of an audit, if you like, of do we have those five things in place? Can I tell you what those five things are, you know, before we even roll it out to the staff? Do we roll it out to the staff from a top-down way or do we find people who are, you know, powerful uh, relationship brokers on staff to be part of this team? Well, certainly, as I said, change is a huge thing. I'd recommend a really good book by uh, John Cotter called Leading Change. Um, I think that would be a really um, useful book. And there's another book, uh, and we'll put all the links to this and other useful resources in the show notes. There's another book that's called Leading Strategic Change. Um, and that t- talks about some of the other barriers that, that you might come up against as well. 
Um, but yeah, that's pretty much what I've got on that. And of course, the other book that uh, we would definitely recommend, which we're doing in our Habits of Leadership course, is Primal Leadership by Daniel Goleman, who talks a lot about psychological safety. And just hearing you talk there, Dan, it made me think that as teachers, uh, which the majority of our listeners probably are, we are very good at managing the individual personalities of our students. It makes me think that as leaders, we really need to think about managing the personalities, um, quirks, idiosyncrasies of our staff members as well. I don't think it would be any stretch to say that leaders within schools are very aware of the staff members who are most likely to be resistant to change. Um, it would often be the same people. And the psychological safety of those people is extremely important. And if we go back to that, that great word in our first question, was about harnessing. How do we harness the skills, as Dan was just touching on then, of our highly emotionally intelligent people, our really great um, intuitively aware communicators to perhaps disseminate the message? Does it always need to come from the boss? Is the boss necessarily the best person in every uh, situation to be driving change? Should we be aware of how different people feel as far as um, their own confidence? and they are, Because change requires risk um, and when people need to take risk, they feel a sense of being exposed and that can be a very scary place for a lot of people to feel that sense of being exposed with trying something new. So I suppose just to finish up on, on this idea of, of change and how it can best be facilitated, I think very respectful listening to all of the stakeholders involved in the change from the earliest stage possible will certainly um, support people and allow them to feel that they're part of the change process and as you know, Dad said earlier, as opposed to having change done to them, they're part of a process. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to end our very first episode of Habits of Leadership. Hope you got something from that. Don't forget, if you go to the show notes, you'll be able to find uh, more resources and links that dig deeper into some of the issues that we've spoken about. If you found the podcast worthwhile, why not subscribe so you get first dibs on new episodes. You can do that wherever you found this podcast. And also, if you'd like to submit a question for a future podcast, or perhaps you'd just like to learn more about our work in general, then head over to habitsofleadership.com. But until our next episode, thanks very much for listening and take care. Take it easy.